I click record and I'm going to give a quick intro. Wait, give me a second. Okay, hello, friends. Uh, thank you so much for joining us for another exciting Chabura members shiur. Today is the second installment of an eight part series on the Halakhot of Kashrut by Rav Yonatan Halevi. Last week, the Rav gave an opening intro class into the whole series, uh, which got us really pumped up to get into the details. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, today we are diving into the Halachot of Tevilat Kelim. As usual, all our classes are recorded and available on our website. If you have questions, feel free to raise your hand or write in the chat box. And hopefully we will have also have time for our questions at the end as well. Uh, on an aside, I do want to point out that for the Hebrew speakers out there, that besides incredible content such as the series, the Chabura is working hard on Hebrew shiurim. To stay updated on that, I suggest joining the Hebrew Chabura WhatsApp group, which I will share in the chat box. Uh, with that said, Chacham, it is always a privilege to have you with us, and the floor is yours. Thank you so, so much to all of you for being here, those of you for coming back, and thank you again, Ohad, for making such a beautiful introduction to Sam's world. I wanted to start off today's shiur by letting you know that you should not ever be intimidated by source sheets. And I say that in two different directions. Uh, the first way I tell you, don't be intimidated by source sheets. As a student, there are 17 pages here. And obviously we only have a limited amount of time, but that should never pressure you. I'm reminded of the Mishnah where the Kohen Gadol, God forbid I'm not comparing myself, on Yom Kippurim, stands before the whole Jewish people and he tells them, more than what I have read to you from the Torah is written here inside of this Torah. And the same thing I'm going to tell you today. This source sheet is for you to take with you. And what we don't cover, uh, you'll be able to do it on your own time on a Shabbat or the Chavuta, something of the like. Is it possible to unspotlight me so that I can see everybody on my screen and then they can spotlight me on their own by double clicking my picture? Is it possible? I just, yes. I just did it right now. So is, does okay. that work? Let me see. Uh, it could be that I'm just not as Zoom talented as uh, you. Give me a moment. I have a beautiful screen that I get to see everybody's faces, but now I can't see. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I got it. Perfect. Thank you. It worked? Okay, perfect. Yeah. You guys can still see me though, right? Yes. Babu Hashem. So... Our topic of today is Tevilat Kelim, the immersion of utensils. The immersion of utensils doesn't sound like such an exciting topic. And in general, the way the world is built up is in order to reach exciting topics, you have to build foundations. We're used to a very sensationalist world where in order to teach something, you have to make it as exciting as it possibly could be. And if it's, it's, if it's any type of fundamental or foundational, everybody just wants to wait. And the fact that you are here for a class titled Tevilat Kelim, makes me very proud in seeing every one of you that are willing to build this building in the tower that is Kashrut. And I want to do a few things today. So the first thing I want to do is give you a little bit of a background on the laws of Tavilat Kirim. That's one. The second part that I want to do with you here is to walk you through the actual Shukhan laws of Tavilat Kirim. And I will hopefully take you through the vast majority of the laws in the Shukhan No secondary sources, no other Actual Shulchan Aruch, you deserve to read the Shulchan Aruch inside with the notes of the Ramah. Uh, exciting for me, for the first time that I've ever done outside of my own community, is to 
bring you the unabridged notes of Mori Harav Yaakov Peretz, you should live in me well, my rabbi and my teacher, his actual writings on the Shulchan Aruch from handwriting that he shares with us as students. I presented them here before you and we'll be looking at them for some highlights as we go through. At the end, if we get to it, there's some additional sources. Those additional sources talk about things that are maybe a little more relevant, such as plastic utensils, electric utensils, modern day kitchens and travel, uh, visiting with guests that maybe don't observe the laws of Tevilat Kilim and so on and so forth. And I promise you that if you buckle your seatbelts, you'll at least enjoy the ride of the One more moment as I set up this camera here. And we are in source one. So where does Tevilat Kilim begin? Tevilat Kilim begins in the book of Bamidbar. Really, it should be, if you say it alone, Bimidbar. Why Bimidbar? Because Bamidbar is when it's added to another word, but when it's separate from a word. So in the book of Bamidbar, you have your scene. Here's the scene that's in front of you. Elazar Kohen is standing before the army of the Jewish people who are about to wage war against Midian. I'm thinking of warriors. Today is the 11 month anniversary of the passing of my uncle, the founding member of here, Kiraj Arashamayim, of our community. They passed away from COVID exactly 11 months ago today. Elazar Cohen is standing in front of the Jewish army. He's looking at them and he's giving them for the first time rules that he heard from Moshe Rabbeinu, from the creator of the universe, of what it is that we do when we pillage another nation and we take their utensils and we take the things that are rightfully ours after conquering another nation. How do we make someone else's pots and pans kasher? It might sound funny. Jews were always worried about kashrut. So now we're at war. What are we worried about? When we bring back those pots and pans from war, how do we make our own food inside of them? And this is exactly where the Torah is taking us. tells the men of the army, who are getting ready for war. This is the law of the Torah. commanded Moshe. The gold, and the silver, the copper, the barzel, the iron, the bedil. I think bedil would say in English is tin. And the lead. These types of metals. How many little metals do we have? Gold, silver, copper, iron, tin, and lead. That six type of metal that the Torah mentions here. These six metals. Everything which was used for fire. Should must be passed through fire before we can use it. It must go through the fire and it will become pure. But it must be cleansed with the waters of the Nida. And anything which does not pass through fire, must be passed through water. And you will wander your clothes on the seventh day, you will become pure. And then you can return back to the camp of Israel. So here you see, a very interesting rule. The rule that we're going to discuss in our next installment on how you, I'm going to borrow a word. When the Rambam was talking to his translator, he told him, it's very complicated to translate one language to another language. Very often you read translations and one of two things happen. 
either the translation is not loyal to the original text, meaning it has its own interpretations in it, or you have a situation where the translation is so loyal to the text that you can't read it because it becomes very cryptic. And Rambam says you have to try to translate as loyally as possible while also maintaining integrity to the text. I'm borrowing that idea. There are certain things that we don't have words for in English or the words that we have for them in English are what we might call Ashkenormative words. So an example of that word, to kasher something, to kashering the kitchen, kasher a pot and pan. In Hebrew, the word kasher is not used in, uh, as a verb. It's, it's a, kasher is an adjective, but it describes something. It is not how, what you do to something. You can't kasher something. But lehachshir is the word you would use in Hebrew, though in English, if I would say lehachshir this, lehachshir that, nobody would know what I'm talking about. So forgive me if in the coming classes I use the word kasher, your pot and pan, kashering. I am borrowing a colloquial use of a word from uh, our Ashkenazi brothers and sisters. So there are two separate acts that must be done here, according to the Torah. The first part of this act, or the second, really depending how you read the verse, called davar shal everything that was used in fire, you must pass it through fire in order to make it kasher. This has everything to do with the laws of kashrut and nothing to do with the laws of mikveh. So in terms of kashrut, we know that utensils absorb flavor the same way. They, they get rid of flavor the same way they absorb flavor. So if it was used to cook and fire pig, in order to make it kasher, you have to now cook it in fire without a pig and cleanse the pot. Today, we're not talking at all about fire and, and water and boiling water. We're only focusing on these words. That it also has to go through a process of menida. What are menida? What is menida? What is nida water? Mikveh. Right. One would assume. Wait, wait, wait. By the way, when we find the paraduma. Ah, Yefemo, I was hoping for someone here to give me the right answer. When we find the word menida in the Torah, we find it in the context of the paraduma. Yes, the paraduma. Hold that thought in a moment. I'm going to get to it in the Ibn Ezra in source 4. For right now, I just want to read to you the Mishnah and the Talmud. I want to get right back to this understanding what is Mimida. Let's read the Mishnah in Abu Dazara, chapter 5. He teaches us that a person who takes food utensils from a non-Jew, those that need tevilah, those that need to be immersed in the... Uh, those that need to be boiled in hot water must be boiled in hot water. Those that need to be burned in a fire must be burned in a fire. Hashipud. Here it says Hashapud. But Hashipud v'askala melabinan ba'u. He's a shipud. You know, ever ever went to a good Persian home where they make you kebabs in a fire? On a skewer. That kebab on a fire, that's a shipud. That must go in a fire. Hasakin, the knife, Shafab Hitorah. Okay, this is already a different halakha for next week, not for right now. Tamu Bavliya The Tamud elaborates on this Mishnah. Tana, we are taught. The Chulan Tzirichim Tevila Barbaim Sa'am. We know that all these utensils must be immersed in a mikveh of 40 Sa'am. I don't actually have off the top of my head the gallon measurement for you of what is 40 Sa'am or, or liter. If someone knows it offhand, I would very much appreciate you sharing with me. But that's the minimum amount of natural spring water that is needed inside of a mikveh that a woman would use for it to be done. So the same thing is needed for 
for immersing utensils. From where do we learn this? says the pasuk says, There's another tahara that has to happen here, and from this verse we understand that we need to immerse our utensils in water aside from the kashering process that makes it fit to be used for cooking. teaches us in source three. It needs water, which is part of the um, Tanakh and Tumat Med. Very good. This is a certain kind of sprinkling that is needed. You might think you need that here. You may need that. No, you don't need it. It's a different type of Tanakh. Now, what about the water? What does it mean, It has to be water that Nida immerses herself in. That teaches you that you need 40 Sa'a. Where do you learn that it is 40 Sa'am? It has to say both purify and waters of Nidam. If you would see Vitahel, you would think that all you need is any type of water, a little bit of water, a puddle of water. It says to teach you that you need 40 Sa'am. Not any amount of water will work, but it has to be the proper amount of water. And if the Torah would have written the Menida with the waters of Anidam, you might think that you need to wait until the sun sets, like a woman waits until the sun sets to go to the Mikveh, and only then you can immerse your utensils. At night, there'll be a mad rush to the Mikveh to immerse your utensils. No, it's different than that in the sense that you can immerse something in the Mikveh whenever you would like. Yes, I see you raising your hand, Margaret. But I can't hear you. Perhaps you can unmute yourself. Are you talking about Canaan that you bought from a non-Jew, as you said before? Or are yes. you talking... Well, you mean from a shop? Or you, well, are you going... tell you what I mean. I'm going to tell you what I mean soon. But for right now, we're assuming, yes, you bought utensils from a non-Jew in any which capacity. And now you need to immerse them in a mikveh before you can use them. Uh, you mean the same amount of water that a woman uses? Correct. Are you, how many utensils are you talking about? One pot? Or you talking... one pot? It could be a hundred pots. It needs to be immersed in a mikveh that would be kosher for a woman to use also. Okay. Yes? No, not a kalian mikveh? Oh, yeah, you sure, sure you can make a kalian mikveh. But we're talking here about the type of, uh, the measurement of water. I mean, you can't find a puddle of rain and drop your cup inside of it. It would have to actually be a yeah. minimum amount of water inside yeah. of it. So a keli yeah. is a minimum amount of water. Practically, yeah. it's very difficult to fit a human being in a keli mikve. And so, exactly. right? And so because of that, we make a bigger one for people. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, of course. Thank you for asking. So now we're... Rabbi Yoni, you're now muted yourself. 
Yes, you're on mute now. Okay, I guess that's how much you guys like the shoe. I got muted. So, uh, Robert, I think you had a question before I go forward. Yes, um, I hope you can hear me. Um, the, it's interesting that the Pasuk only brings mainly the, when the, with respect to Kelim that have to go through the fire. Do we then assume it doesn't actually apply to those that have to go through Hagalah? Very good. I guess if we were just reading the verse, literally, we might assume that it only applies to the first half of the verse and not to the second half of the verse. Um, interestingly enough, I've never seen any of the Chachamim, even not in a halakhic level, but like on a understanding the Pasuk level, entertain that thought that way. It would be it would warrant a good look into the, under, the understanding of the Mephashim and the Salah, because I'm going to show you now, and even Ezra, who does read this verse, not the way that Chachamay Israel read this verse. So until now, we know the following. When you buy a utensil from an Anju, you must take it to the Mikveh before you use it. This taking it to the Mikveh seemingly is a separate process than kashering it in terms of they use it for something not kosher, and now I want to use it for something kosher. This could be something brand new. They never used it before. But when we take it from them, we must immerse it in the mikveh first. Rabbeinu Abraham ibn Ezra, in source number four, he says, It should seem to us, like what Simon said, that this meinida is the, the same as the ashes of the red heifer that we are commanded to use elsewhere. He said, what can I do? At the end of the day, the rabbis of Israel interpret this verse differently, and their mind is broader than our mind. This is a very unique style of Rabbi Abraham ibn Ezra. And I don't know what exactly Rabbi Dweck is teaching on Sundays from Rabbi Abraham ibn Ezra, but I can imagine that he will touch at some point, if not already, on this uh, style of Rabbi Abraham ibn Ezra to interpret verses sometimes differently than the way Chachamei Israel have interpreted verses, though obviously the first, them at the end, in terms of Halachic judgment. For those who are writing the chat box, I can't read the chat box, but if there's something important that needs to be said, maybe Yohad can uh, unmute himself and let me know. Wait, wouldn't Ibn Ezra have just argued that maybe the whole thing was rabbinic? And that that's not really what the verse says, because it's it was rabbinic in the first place, and the rabbis were just using that verse as an asmachta to their... We're going to talk soon about, about whether this commandment is biblical or rabbinic, and that very, very well be a part of that conversation. If you look in source 5, the Gemara asks, New utensils and old utensils that you now make kasher need they need That's true. Even the scissors used to cut clothing, do you have to take them again? No, the Torah is talking only about utensils that are used for food. If you buy yourself new scissors to, for your sewing kit, you do not have to take them to the mikveh. If you buy yourself a screwdriver made out of uh, iron and you want to use it to screw in your mizuzah, you do not have to take the screwdriver to the mikveh. Where do we know this from? Because the Torah is only talking about food utensils. How do we know the Torah is only talking about food utensils? Look at Rashi in verse 6. There is a Rashbad that understands a little differently, but it's the Rashi. It says in the Torah, anything which comes through fire. 
because you only use things in the fire that you're eating from. That's that's when you, the things that you usually use in the fire are food utensils. Then and that's where you know this from Maran in the Bitusef and Source Seven. He quotes this as the reason. We know that this law only applies to food utensils. So now let's narrow it down. Of these six metal utensils that we take from the non-Jews that are used for food, we are now limiting what metal utensils those are. The ones that are used for food require us to immerse them prior in a mikveh. In source number eight, the Talmud continues. Rav Nachman says the name of Baba Ravua. You only are required to immerse utensils in a mikveh when you purchase them from a non-Jew. But if you borrow them from a non-Jew, meaning you go to your next door neighbor and say, hey, do you have an extra uh, pan, pot, fork, knife, and you're borrowing it, forget the laws of kashrut. We're not talking here about the laws of kashrut, how to make it kosher. We're talking now only in the limited framework of tevinah. You are not required to immerse these utensils in a mikveh because they are borrowed. The next, Rabbi Tzchak Bar Yosef, he bought himself a clay dung pot. It's kind of gross when you think about it, but hey, that's a thing. Uh, and he bought it from a non-dressed person. He was going to go take it to the mikveh to immerse it. One of the rabbis told him, his name is Rabbi Yaakov, you don't have to immerse any other utensil in the mikveh aside from metals. Metals are required to be immersed, but other materials such as clay or dung are not required to be immersed in the mikveh. Uh, what else do we immerse in the mikveh? Glass, of course. I miss the word here, the Gemara should say damu. Because glass can be heated up, melted down, and reshaped. Let's say you break a glass cup. Technically, you can heat up that glass and make a new glass cup. Because of that, our rabbis added a new requirement, and that is they require us to immerse glass in a mikveh because it's similar to metal in the way that it can be melted down and reshaped into a new utensil. Unlike earthenware, or unlike dung, or unlike other things, Glass and metal share this quality, and therefore our rabbis have now added a rabbinic law that says that we must immerse glass utensils in a mikveh. So let me summarize so far. When we purchase metal utensils from a non-Jew, which metals? So far, these six metals. And we want to use them to eat, regardless of whether they're new or old, we must immerse them in a mikveh. A 40 se'ah, which is kasher for a woman to also immerse herself in, and, and this applies to glass as well, because our rabbis consider glass and metal to be similar enough that they must undergo immersion. I see two questions. I'm going to take as many questions as you need at the end, but if it's something you need now to understand this, you're going forward, I will obviously stop and answer the questions. So just a question on the um, the rabbinic decree on glass. What, is that what, do we know what the logic is? It's not Gezeira, is it? Well, what's the logic to having that rabbinic decree? That's a, that's a great question in terms of the actual technical detail it falls under. We're going to see this in the commentaries of the Shulchan when they try to determine whether or not it needs a Berakha. Lama uh, said the rabbis are including glass as a type of metal. We're going to see soon that they don't limit metal to just the six metals of the Torah. 
but they say that all medals are included and the Torah just gave six of them uh, because those are examples and those were the most prevalent of the medals that existed and therefore any new medal that we find would also be included in this and they're kind of considering glass as some type of uh, similar enough to metal that it would be included in this in this uh, halakha. The exact mechanism is a good question. Okay, thanks. Yeah. Now, if you look here in source 10, 11, 12, and 13, I'm going to skip them right now, but for your own, you're welcome to look as to why do we immerse utensils in a mikra. Uh, there's an understanding here. Let's look at the Tamudi Ushami. The Tamudi Ushami, source 11, Shanun They ask him why you have to immerse utensils. He tells them, it's almost like this utensil, I'm borrowing the term, is undergoing some type of viewer process, some conversion process. It goes from the non-Jewish domain to the Jewish domain to the holiness of Am Yisrael, and the utensil itself has to go through some type of view. Now, the Meiri, Rabbeinu Chaim, the Ozawah, you have the... They give different reasons slightly for why we immerse utensils in the mikveh. You have to understand that when the Torah tells us something, especially we use the words like Zot Pukat Torah, it's not so clear that there must be a reason for why something is done. Uh, but we're going to see that this reason of the Tamudi Rushami is going to influence Rav Kuk at the end and end of the source sheet in how he treats people that are not observant who own glass utensils, but I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. But for right now, if you wanted a reason, I'm not telling you the reason, to think about what your utensil is going through, it's going through some type of transformation process of leaving the domain of the non-Jew and entering the realm of, of Jewish use of food and whatever holiness might be associated with that. Yes, Abraham. Let me just disconnect the idea of cashering versus transfer of ownership. The way I've learned it before, and this is a share that... Um, a Rav in London gave, uh, it was Fee Lieberman, um, if I remember correctly. No, it was um, it was one of the Chabad rabbis who got stuck in 9-11 in, uh, in Canada. The, if the ownership doesn't transfer, you don't need to toivel. Sorry, Margaret? Levi Sudak. That's the one. If the ownership doesn't transfer, the Kalim do not require Tavila. It's the kasher thing is the one about kashering in the fire, but the mikvah is separate. It's a transfer of ownership challenge, not a kasher challenge. Is is that correct interpretation? Or have I got this correct. totally back to front? No, correct. As I said before, we're focusing. There's two elements of this pasuk. One has to do with kashering utensils. That's not for this week. That's for next week. One has to do with the purchase of utensils from non-Jews and being able to use them without any connection to whether or not they've been used before for kasher food or not kasher food. So yes, that's exactly right. Now, I want to show you here on source three. The laws of the Rambam and the Mishnah Torah are relevant to the afternoon. And so if you look on page three, the Rambam has all of six halakhot. And in six very brief paragraphs, the Rambam tells you everything you need to know about the laws of the afternoon. So this is my emergency route. If uh, we run out of time, we're just going to jump back to the Rambam and everything you need to know is in the Rambam. Uh, and you can see in the next page, on page four, the Shulchan Aruch takes 16 paragraphs with notes of the Ramah, and I've added now notes of the Ramah, to explain to you what the Rambam was able to do in very clear, simple Hebrew on in page three. And in general, this fits into what I've told you before, that I cannot take away from the Rambam the clarity and the, the it's not brevity in a negative way, in the most profound way, the order 
everything is constructed without complications, without opinions, without problems. And that is the Rambam. If I had time today to go to the Rambam, I would, but you're welcome to look up this Rambam in your own. Instead, I wish to jump with you right into the Shukhan so that all of you who have been wondering practical halakot, now you can sit and learn with me some practical halakot. If we get to them, we will definitely be looking at some of the more interesting sources at the end that are more relevant to our modern situations. But for right now, let's open up the Shukhan chapter 120, Yoreh Dam. The laws of Tvilat Kelim. This is on page four. And in between, you'll find three different sections. So you have black, bold words. Those are the words of Maran Rabbi Yosef Cairo. The gray words that are a little bit smaller are the notes of Rabbi Moshe Iserlish, the Ramah, on the uh, Shukhan Aruch. So he interjects either when he disagrees or he has something to add or for whatever other reason. For those of you who listen to my classes in the Chavuan Maran, you probably should know already about Maran and the Ramah and perhaps the relationship between them. And then underneath, you have the notes of Mori Haradiyakoferet, and I will refer to them whenever it is necessary to jump into them. For you, this might be the first time you ever have writings of Haradiyakoferet in your hands, and uh, I would encourage you to hold on to them and to look at them. Let's start with my answers. Someone who buys, here it's a little bit for Someone who buys from a non-Jew, glass, uh, metal utensils, or glass utensils, that are food utensils. So someone who buys from a non-Jew food utensils made of metal and glass. Even if the utensils that you purchase are new, these utensils must be immersed in a kasher mikveh of 40 sa. So again, he summarized everything we just said. One who purchases, not borrows, from a non-Jew, not from a Jewish person. Clay suda, food utensils. So not non-food utensils don't count. Of metal or glass. Those utensils must go to the mikveh, even if they've never been used before. So like we said, this has nothing to do with making your utensils kasher. and everything to do with making your utensils fit to be used according to the halakha. The Ramah adds, what the Ramah is adding about here is glazed utensils, they're glazed with metal on one side, they're glazed with metal on the other side. I don't want to get into this with you. Let's look here in the notes of our parents. One who buys from a non-Jew. If you borrow from a non-Jew or you rent something from a non-Jew, then you do not have an obligation of Tevilat Kenim. Food utensils. That only applies to food utensils. In Beth, on page four, there are an overwhelming majority of Muslim who are of the opinion that immersing utensils in a mikveh is a biblical commandment. So that's the leaf, Rashi, the Ravad, Rabenutam, Ravia, the Smak, the Tirumat Adeshen, the Rashba, the Ros, the Prichadas, the Pritoar, the Gra, the Chida, the Chuchmat Adam, the Aruch Shulchan, and the Taz, so on and so forth. All of their opinions are that this is a biblical requirement to immerse utensils in the Mikveh. There are a smaller minority of Chachamim who are of the opinion, that's the Tosvot Arid, the Ridba, the Chot Chaim, the Radbaz, the Rad Rabbanan, the Jerusalem Israel, and more. Let's say that it's only a rabbinic obligation to immerse utensils in the mikveh. But the majority of the poskim's understanding is that this is a biblical requirement. Regardless of whether it's biblical or rabbinic, the bottom line is that immersing utensils in the mikveh warrants a blessing, as we're going to read soon. And even if it's a rabbinic blessing, so it's still a blessing, and that's what we do. Now, in section Gimel, the prohibition of using utensils that have not been immersed. So... Uh, I'm going to take questions at the end. If it's possible, I'm going to take questions at the end. Uh, in the, in the utensils that have not been 
first. You go somewhere and there's a cup. This happened in Corona. In the beginning of COVID, one of the more common questions I got, I bought all these things for Pesach. I need to immerse them in Mikveh. I can't get to a Mikveh. Are you able to use things one time? Am I able to lend them to somebody? Am I able to... All of these questions become very simple. You have an obligation to immerse utensils in the Mikveh. If you don't immerse utensils on the Mikveh, it does not affect the kashrut of your food. So if you boiled rice in a pot that was not immersed in a mikveh, that rice is kasher. Remember, we're not talking about anything that has to do with kashrut. The question is, are you violating any type of commandment by using the pot without first immersing it? And uh, there are many chachamim who are of the opinion that even by metal pots, which are surely biblical, when you use them without tevila, you are only violating a rabbinic prohibition. It's not, it's a, it's a, some say, bitul mitzvah aseh, you're not violating a biblical prohibition as much as you're avoiding the fulfillment of a biblical commandment, which is to immerse utensils when you use them. So this is going to be very relevant because there are times where a person cannot make it to the mikveh. Or you go to someone's home and they don't immerse the utensils in the mikveh. And you have to realize now you're not dealing anymore with a biblical commandment. You're dealing with either not fulfilling a biblical commandment or maybe even just a rabbinic commandment, which you may be in violation of. And that totally change, changes the game when it comes to assuming whether or not things are immersed. And when you see something that's a doubt, if it's a biblical law, you must be stringent. If it's a rabbinic law, you are lenient. This is going to change the game later on in uh, the conversations that we'll have towards the end of today's show. Uh, glass, like I told you, is included in this uh, prohibition. If you turn to page five. In the bottom of page five, in the right column, there's a source design. These are the materials that don't require to be that. So kleets, wood, kleavanim, stone, klecheres, ceramic. Included in that is kleadama, any type of earthenware, keramika, ceramics, kleetzem, boneware. Uh, that's illegal, at least in the United States. I don't know about anywhere else, but ivory uh, that comes from animals would be, for example, from a, a tusk, from an elephant. Shemishma will be ruined in the world because people want those tasks. The damage that we've wrecked on this world because of the greed that we have to take things that we don't necessarily need. They, those are included in the things that don't require tevila. Alapenets writes here, clean nylon or plastic. Plastic, uh, anything that made out of nylon or plastic does not require tevila either. Now, don't think for a moment that's so simple. If you look at the end of this packet, I brought a number of postings who dealt at length whether or not plastic needs tevila. Tell me, give me an argument for why plastic might need to be that. Convince me that plastic needs to be that. On Pesach. For, in, no, not Kashrut. Tell me why in the laws of TV, immersing utensils in the mikveh, why would plastic be required? Just speak. It's Kliyokha. It's a food utensil. Okay, tell me though what makes it the, of the material. So wood is also Kliyokha. So what's different? It's made by a non-Jew. Okay, very good. Can be recycled. Um, it's okay, that's magic. Made of oil. You're able to melt plastic down and reshape it. Only some. Not so all. You recycle it every not time. All, you recycle not all plastics it. will do that. Only some. Okay, plastic. very, very good. Don't worry. I'm not going to get you to do tevila for your plastic. I already told you it doesn't require tevila. I only asked you to make an argument for me about why it should require tevila, and this is the answer. The answer is because plastic can also be melted down and reshaped, and because of that. Maybe plastic should be like glass, and glass is like metal, so now plastic should be immersed in the mikveh. Uh, the Chagonim who dealt with this issue, they use a fascinating rabbinic rule, and their rule is, 
אין אנו גוזרים גזרות מדעתנו. We cannot make our new gזרות. We can't make up new rules that didn't exist before. I only wish the same Akharonim who said that here, like plastic, would say that everywhere else where they made new gazerot. That's my only wish. That every time they come up with new rules, they also wouldn't make new rules because we're not allowed to make up new rules. But it seems that there are selective following in when we're allowed to make up new rules and we're not allowed to make up new rules. But for right now, let's all breathe a sigh of relief that the rabbis so far haven't decided that your plastic cups must require tevila. We'll get to other such things. But for right now, these are the utensils that don't require tevila. There are customs that people have. I don't know why, I don't know where, to immerse ceramic, to immerse earthenware, to immerse china. I'll, I'll tell you, it's very simple. The Tomas is metal, the rabbis added glass, metal and glass. Please don't make life any more complicated than life has to be. Right. For right now, let's keep uh, reading in, in the Halakot here. On page six, Maran says, צריך שיהיה הכלי רפוי בידו בשעה תבילה, שאם מהדקו בידו הווה חציצה, ואם נחלך ידו במים תחילה אין לחוש. When you immerse this in the water, you take now the utensil and you put it in the water. You can't be holding on to this utensil while it's in the water. Why? Because while you're holding it on, the water is not reaching all the parts of the cup at the same time. Now like anyone else who goes to Mikveh, You can't immerse things half and half. So you can't stick half of the cup in and then flip it over and stick the other half. In order for something to be immersed properly, all of it has to enter the water, practically. Now, in order to do that, how do you do it? You have to make sure that you let go of the cup. You should know that this seems to be uh, directly against the Rambam. The Rambam is of the opinion that Chachami made a Gizerah, that you're not allowed to hold things while you immerse them in a Mikveh because maybe you won't let go well enough in order to drop it in. Maran, at the end of the day, this is one of those places, as I mentioned in my class in the Chavua earlier, Maran, at times, is at odds with the Rambam. Here is one of those places where Maran is telling you that it is possible to put the Kli in the Mikveh and let go of it briefly. The other option is to make sure that your hands are wet. There's a Machalokit among the Chavonim, whether this is Mikveh, water or not. So you make your hands wet and then you put it in the Mikveh. And then the cup is now wet in all sides. There are some Machavonim that wanted you to stick your hand in the mikveh, make your hand wet with mikveh water, drop the cup, let's say, into your hand, and then even though you're holding it, but the water on your hands has never been detached from the mikveh, and now everything has been immersed from all sides. I have to tell you that we're very lucky that you live in a world where you don't have to fight the Rambam uh, to make uh, Maran happy here. All you do is you go to the mikveh and you can take a, a, I don't know, the basket or, you should know, immersing in a basket is also a question, but immersing in a basket is absolutely fine. It has holes. in a screen or something like that, you put it inside of the mikveh, you take it out, and you're not making anybody upset. And that's the way that you immerse a utensil. I don't see a need to get into any of the other uh, details over here. Gimeh, in Halakha Gimeh. Yivarech, you say the blessing. Baruch HaDashem, blessed Hashem, Lokeram Elcha Olam, Asher Kiddishanu B'Mitzvodah V'Tzivanu, Al Tevilat Kili, on the immersion of a utensil. You command me to immerse this utensil. Vim Hem Shnaim O'Yotern, if there's more than one utensil, You recite the blessing in the plural form. Now, if you recite in one way, not the other way, don't get so stuck on this. At the end of the day, even if you immerse the utensil without reciting a blessing, would the utensil be considered immersed? Yes, like 99% of the mitzvot, people get very scared here. 99% of the mitzvot that you do, if you do them without a blessing, Nothing happens to you. You still get the, you put on the kinin without a blessing, you still got a mitzvah. 
if you uh, anything you do without a blessing, you still get a mitzvah of doing that thing. And therefore, uh, this would be the beracha. And though there are some different rabbis that argued about the exact language of the beracha, this is the beracha that we recite together. If you look on page seven. Writes in section 20, even though immersing glass utensils in the mikveh is a rabbinic law, we recite a blessing over them like you recite a blessing over any other rabbinic mitzvah, uh, lighting Shabbat candles, uh, Hanukkah candles, uh, so on and so forth. Whenever you fulfill a rabbinic mitzvah, you recite those blessings. The same thing with glass. And Allah Peretz writes here something that I think is true. And if you're immersing glass and metal dishes together, so immerse the metal utensils first. You're reciting a blessing and surely a biblical commandment. And then the glass will say afterwards they're all included in the same blessing. But if you have a choice, why don't you recite a blessing on glass on the metal utensils before the glass utensils? Let's look through the type of utensils that uh, require tevila. So I'll read you some of the more common utensils that you might have around your house that require tevila. So any kind of metal grates that you actually gr- you grill food on or you roast food on themselves. Not the racks of your oven that you put a pot on, but the grill, let's say the barbecue. Yes, that would require tevila. Um, an egg slicer would require tevila. A blender, that's in Gima. That's not a Hebrew word, but that's the word they're using now in Israel for a blender. The, the metal part of a blender or the glass blender, it depends. You could have a plastic blender that only has a metal blade or it could be the whole part of it is glass. You don't immerse, we're going to talk about electronic appliances later, but I'm talking now just about the glass and the metal part for right now. Um, a baby bottle, if you still have glass baby bottles, it could be that will become a thing again with the young people that get back into glass bottles. For right now, they, most bottles are made out of uh, plastic, but that would be a glass bottle. Um, a hot water urn that you boil water in, let's say, for Shabbat. A toaster. Agapelz is not convinced that toaster requires to be that. Um, we'll talk about it perhaps later. A thermos. Um, all the pots, lids, the, the covers, all of them require to be that. We're going to see that soon. Cups, knives, forks, uh, spoons, anything made out of metal or glass. Um, a frying pan, a pot. I keep going. I think that you understand. A salt and pepper shaker that have salt and pepper inside of them. Scissors that you use to cut food. So not scissors that you have lying around your kitchen and they're just there and randomly you're going to cut something with it. That doesn't require to do that. Yes, but something that you use for food. And there are people, there are kitchens where they use their knives, uh, their scissors as part of their food. That would require to be that. A strainer. If you have a metal, they call it a colander. If you strain something in that metal strainer, that would require to be that. A nutcracker requires to be that. A tea. I'm, I'm a... I'm a not so fancy. I'd use a tea bag, but I have students here with loose leaf teas, got these metal things, they put them inside. Those fancy people, that thing needs to go to the mikveh. And the staple in my tea bag does not need to go to the mikveh. And Baruch Hashem, now I'm in California, they don't have staples in the tea bags anyway, so that doesn't require TV land the mikveh either. I think those were outlawed with the straws. They banned both of them. Today in California, you can still carry your straws in the street. So we have here in Halakhat Dalit, Malan writes, Tripidish, forgive my butchering of the pronunciation. 
ששופטים עליהם קדרות אינם תאונות טבילה. Some type of metal rack that you put a pot on top of. What's in my mind right now? You have a stove top. On the stove top, you have those, some of you have gas stove top, it's like metal things that the pots sit on. That does not require tevila. Why? Because the pot goes on the metal thing, and the metal doesn't actually touch your food, so it's not a klisuda, and therefore that pot needs to go to the mikveh, but not the actual metal stem. But any type of rack where the food actually touches the rack, like I mentioned, the barbecue, you would need to do tevila on that as well. In page eight, Maran writes, Sakin shel shakita, a shakita knife. So the knife, they call it in Yiddish, uh, a chalat, I think that's what they call it. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about? A knife of shakita, that's what we call it. So a shakita knife, when you slaughter a chicken, or a, I remember when I first came to the yeshiva in Israel, I said, I come from a very Lithuanian yeshiva. And Bok Hashem, Hashem should bless the Lithuanians, but practical halakhot was not their strong point. Yes? And I came now to a Sephardic yeshiva, in which the only strong point was halachot. And I come into the Osh Yeshiva's office, I had to ask them a question, and I see some guy coming in there, like a samurai sword, you don't know, something, something huge. And I, I was, you know, I'm in Jerusalem, it's the old city, we're in the middle of terror attacks, I see some guy, he's Middle Eastern, he's wearing a kippah sword, but he's coming in there with a big knife, he has to protect the Osh Yeshiva, I know they're going to kill him. He's just coming in to check his shechita knife, you shech chickens, you slaughter them with a little knife, and they're lambs, and cows, and they're bigger knives, and it's part of what he's training the students is how to sharpen the knife, how to feel it with a nail, how to examine it in the light, and so on and so forth. I wasn't used to yeshiva in which the rabbis actually knew how to deal with halakot. And so uh, these knives, do they require shakita? Maran says that sakin shal shakita, a shakita knife, the Rama adds, o sakin shal bo, or the knife that they use to remove the, the hide from the animal, so the skin from the animal. Yes, there is the one who says that it does not require tevina. Why would a shechita knife not require tevina? Tell me, tell me. Because it's food. before the shechita. Uh, oh, but now it's food. I mean, it's a part of preparing your food. No. Before you shech the animal, it's a kosher behemoth, but it isn't kosher in the Jewish sense. Okay, so very similar. Let's read this. Hatam, the reason sakin shal shechita l'nachshav klesuda. A shechita knife is not considered food utensil. Mishum shadayin behemah shechita tzrikha tikun bishul otsriya shabasar l'gurun achilak. That you don't yet eat that animal until you roast it and you cook it and you season it. So right now this knife is serving a purpose that is not yet a food purpose. Also, those metal utensils they use when they make matzot would not require tevila. Why? Because the matzot still need to be baked. This is a whole new world of, so are the things that we use to prepare food before it's ready to be used, do they require tevila? There are those who argue, of course. Um, and the other later day commentaries, if you look in the left-hand column, Vedat Pritoa. Who's the Pritoa? Who wrote Pritoa? Somebody here must know the Pritoa. Okay, do you know of a rabbi named the Oh Hachaim, Rabbi Chaim Benatar? Yes, he was the rabbi of 
the Chida. Yes, he was the rabbi of the Chida, very good from North Africa. He wrote the book Purito. Purito, we're going to speak about him when it comes to Chalav Yisrael. That's part of his, one of his uh, writings there. But for right now, he writes, That knives in the kitchen, if you use them exclusively for vegetables that, don't requ- that, that require cooking, maybe you don't have to immerse those knives. But if you also cut cucumbers, lettuce, tomatoes, things that you could eat raw, then in that situation, those knives are required uh, to be immersed in the mikvah. So I would tell you that the utensils they use in your kitchen, even though you sometimes use them for raw things that require cooking, likely they're not exempt from tevilah, and you're required to immerse them in the mikvah like anything else. Uh, Vav, Maran is going to talk to you about things that are mixed. So it's wood that's held up by metal. So let's say you have some type of it was a wood kiddush cup and it's built into something maybe there's metal as long as the cup itself is wood it doesn't require tevila even if there's something supporting it that's metal now we get somewhere interesting on page 9 Maran writes in someone who borrows or you rent utensils from non-Jews you do not have to immerse them in the so you're making a bar mitzvah for your child, a bar mitzvah, you're making a wedding, whatever it is. You're renting thousands of dishes from a catering company. Yes? This catering company may not be Jewish. I don't know how it works in the UK, but a non-Jewish catering company that has Jewish worker, uh, yes? you don't have to immerse those utensils in the But if I, a Jewish person, buy the utensils from a non-Jew, and now I'm lending them to you, you have to immerse them in the Jewish because once I bought the utensils from the non-Jew, now they become a Jewish bought utensil, which requires to be that. There's one who says, that if I didn't buy the utensils in order for me to use them, I only bought them to do some type of business with them that's not for food. And below, you don't have to immerse them in a mikveh. And here, you, Maran interest, uh, brings an interesting opinion about a Jewish person who buys utensils not for the purpose of food. Perhaps those utensils have now lost their status of things that require immersion in a mikveh. And this leads the shach and the taz, for example, to say that if you go to a kosher catering company and you rent utensils from them, and they don't use those, they use them for food. They, you could technically borrow their utensils and not have to immerse them in a mikveh because it's already going through this process. We'll talk about it a little bit later. In Halakha Tet, somebody once came to me and said, I would like to give you a dollar from a famous Hasidic Rebbe. I said, please, that's very special. Thank you for the gift. And I look at the dollar and the dollar said on it, the year 2010. Now, this rabbi had died many, many years before 2010. So I said, listen, either you're making fun of me or, or this dollar is, uh, something's wrong with it. I said, no, you see, that rabbi gave dollars and we mixed all those dollars with other dollars. And then we hand out those dollars and we keep mixing dollars with dollars and dollars. And in 2010, we're still giving out dollars from 1985. And so now you have a dollar from Mazatum. Uh, what do you use the dollar for? You can buy yourself a uh, Pepsi, Cola, and the store. So that's a dollar from 2010. What's special with this dollar? Now, someone once came to a famous Lithuanian Rosh Hashiva. He says, Rabbi, you won't believe it. My parents, they left me in their inheritance. 
achala, bread, that was given to them by the Chazonish. Now, the Chazonish died in the 1950s. If I'm not mistaken, he passed away a very long time ago. You have a chalaf in the Chazonish? He says, yeah, how did you keep it fresh? And we kept it in the freezer. So you kept the chalaf in the freezer? He says, yeah. He said, well, what did you do with it on Pesach? He said, on Pesach, we sold it to someone. He said, on Pesach, you sold it to who? He said, ah, Muhammad, I don't know. I sold it to the non-Jewish guy. It's a cheap rabbinate, uh, mechirat chametz form. He says, my dear friend, then you don't have the chalaf, the chazonish anymore. You have a 50-year-old chalaf that belongs to Muhammad. It doesn't belong to you. It's not, it's not a chazonish chalaf. You have to think about this. Same situation here. You have utensils. Now you want to sell those utensils. People make this mistake every year, Pesach. People come to you, Rabbi, I have to sell my chametz utensils for Pesach. I tell them, I'm happy to sell your chametz utensils for you. I'm just going to tell you that when you get them back after Pesach, you're going to have to take your whole kitchen to the mikveh all over again because for eight days, you sold them to somebody who wasn't Jewish. Am I right? Let's look at the halakha. Mishken over kochavim If the non-Jew gives a utensil to a Jewish person, as a, there's a word for this in English that's slipping my mind right now, um, um, uh, someone help me. Uh, collateral. Collateral, thank you. He gives you this utensil to hold on to. If it seems like he wants to hold on to it, then it requires because he intended to leave it with the Jewish person. And because he was going to leave it with the Jewish person for good, it requires Tevila. Vimla, but if it's apparent that he's going to come back and pay his bills and take back his utensils, then you have to immerse it without a bracha or immerse it with something else. So here's an interesting situation. They're giving you a pot. This pot is right now temporarily in your house. The guy doesn't come get it. For right now, it's yours. Does it require tevila or not? Depends whether the non-Jew is really going to come pick it up. The Bach, by the way, in Source Lamed Hay, in the bottom left, I'll tell you brings him. I think it's a very beautiful teaching here. He says that you're holding on to utensil of a non-Jewish person. Are you allowed to use it? He says you shouldn't use it. You shouldn't use it because you're stealing from the non-Jewish person who left it with you to be left untouched. And you have to respect his property by not using his property when it's by you. It's a little insight in the world of Halakha, but I feel like there's something here to be learned for the world who tramples and takes things that don't even belong to them, let alone this object which was given to you to hold on to. But it's an important thing to think about. In Halachatim, you have an interesting question. A Jewish man has silver. Silver, um, he wants you to make, he wants the non Jewish craftsman to make him a Kiddush cup. Yeah? He brings him a lump of silver, he pays him to make a silver cup for him. Now, does that cup require Tevila or not? Maran writes, Israel Shanatan Kesef Luman Boy, a Jewish man who gave silver to a non-Jewish worker to make for himself a utensil, does not require tevila. Because it's his silver. He hired the man to work for him. Not everything a non-Jew touches requires tevila. Only if it belongs to him. It doesn't belong to him. It belongs to me. And because of that, it does not require tevila. Says the Ramah, and there are those who argue, and you should immerse it without a belcha. And with that, you should get used to this in the Ramah. Always there's someone who argues, and therefore you should do something out of caution to fulfill another opinion. But I'm reading to you the words of Maran and Shukarawu. In Yud Aleph. Yisrael Shemachat Kli A Jewish person, this is the Hamid situation. A Jewish person sells his utensil to a non-Jewish person. Now he goes and buys it back from him. Maran says it requires Tevila. 
So you sold your utensil to a non-Jewish person for Pesach, and now you come to buy it back. That's what happens according to them, no? People sell chametz and their utensils, but they come and buy them back. You have to put them in the mikveh. But if you lent it to him, meaning you gave it to him as a, as a collateral, and then you came to take it back, you didn't lose ownership over it, and it does not require it to be that. So when it comes to Pesach, you have to make sure, please, not to sell pots and pans to non-Jews. Because those pots and pans and those toasters and blenders, everything you think you're selling, when you come back after Pesach, you would have to immerse all of them in a mikveh. Rama talks about what happens if a Jewish person and a non-Jewish person buy something together. It does not require tevilah. It never really left non-Jewish domain in the first place. For that, it does not require tevilah. Rama talks about a sad situation in which the non-Jews would pillage the Jewish community and they would temporarily seize our property and then give it back randomly. Would those things require tevilah or not? Depends on the state of mind of the Jewish community, whether they feel like they're ever going to get their items back. We're very grateful to live in a world where that's not a reality that we live in anymore. We don't feel like someone is going to come unjustly to seize our property. Though, unfortunately, those things could still happen. I recently was uh, watching the news of uh, a border patrol agent here in, in Arizona who had stolen $40,000 from an American veteran just because he could, confiscated on the side of the road. He said, you shouldn't be driving around the $40,000. must be you're a drug dealer took away his entire life savings. This veteran was keeping in the back of his pickup truck. It took him years to get his money back. Years to get his money back. Because how does he get to prove account? And he had receipts for every bank withdrawal he ever made. That's the only reason he was able to get his money back. But I guess in some places, this could still happen. But it is not an intentional non-Jews come to persecute Jews and take away their items. And therefore, that halakha is not so relevant to ask him. In halakha 11, When you immerse a pot or a pen, you also have to immerse the handle. Does the handle come in contact with food? No, but it's still part of the utensil. And in order for utensil to be immersed, it has to be fully immersed inside of the water. Maran writes for us in Halakha 13, on the top of page 11. We must immerse uh, the utensil when it's clean. Clean meaning even from rust. You have a rusty pot. You can't immerse a rusty pot in the mikveh. What happens if you didn't get rid of the rust? Anyone here familiar with the laws of Chatzita as it relates to the men and women who go to the Mikveh? Today we are outrageously strict about, we, meaning not me, but I'm just saying, we are outrageously strict about the laws of Chatzita for people who go to the Mikveh. What's the rule of Chatzita, the real bottom line rule of, of separation between your skin and the water in the Mikveh? Don't be scared. Yeah, if it's you can't on have anything in your skin. You know, so the baseline is you can't have anything on your body that separates you in the water. Yeah, but what's the hell but if it's, it's a foreign object your body and you don't mind that it's there then or you want it there then it's okay right so there are two bigger there are two moving pieces there's one part of do you want it there or do you not want it there if you want it there then it's not a separation it's something you want in your skin yes the second is is it the majority of your body or is it the minority of your body something that's the minority of your body even if you don't want it there technically is not a chatzitza Something that covers the majority of your body, but you want it there, is also technically not a chatzitan. We have decided to go strict in both directions and say, even something that doesn't cover the majority of your body, and you want it there, you still can't have it on you when you go to the mikveh. This leads to complications beyond belief when it comes to people's observance of halachot, especially when it comes to mikveh, 
I can't fix all of the problems in the world all at once, all at the same time. But this is one of those things that, unfortunately, there are people who have turned away from me for all kinds of reasons, which is in its own right is a conversation that I don't want to open up right now. I don't even know why there's people in the mikveh. The only job of the person who's in the mikveh, the only job of the person in the mikveh is for, a, for what reason? What's, what's their job? To make sure that all of someone's hair has gone in the water. They have to make sure that because the water, the hair floats in the water, which is also itself a stringency, let's say. But let's say, fine, you want to put on a hairnet and you go into the mikveh and then anybody there. I definitely don't need you there to charge me an entrance fee and an exit fee and an examination and look this way and look that way. And It's not a prison cell where people are doing uh, checks. This is just a mikveh. It's all in here. You need to do something private that you're not even supposed to know about. It would be behoove the people who run these mikvahs to the very least learn a little bit of halakhot before they send someone home to violate an isul karet, a real biblical prohibition, for something that is a stringency of... of I said it for those who understand when it comes to rust here writes, if you are uh, particularly you don't want the rust on your pen then you can't immerse this time but if there's some rust that's there and you just can't get it off you tried and you burned it off and you scraped it off it just doesn't get off it's considered a minority that you don't care about and therefore it's not a chachitah this applies to all kinds of things. People take utensils to the mikveh as a sticker at the bottom. The sticker, you have to take it off. Assuming you don't want the sticker that says made in China on the bottom. I'll tell you, once I told the person to immerse the utensil with the sticker on it. When? That a father-in-law who was of a Hasidic persuasion and he required all of the ceramic utensils to go to the mikveh. Why? I don't know. He couldn't read the Shulchan And so he wanted all of the utensils to go to the mikveh and the son didn't want to do it. I said, listen, you can do it both ways. You can make him happy and still not immerse your utensil. Don't take off any of the stickers in the bottom of the plate. Just immerse them in the mikveh. So now you did it, you immerse the utensils, but the stickers are still there. Now it really doesn't work because the sticker doesn't really matter. But but it was to make him feel good that he was wasn't actually fulfilling the mitzvah properly of tivirat kelim. And of course the bavachai he didn't say. En ma'aminim katana tivirat kelim. This is interesting halacha that aside from the pot being clean and not full of rust or stickers or other such things. Can I immerse a utensil through somebody else? So I hear, hey, my wife is going to the mikveh to go uh, immerse a, a pot. And my next door neighbor says, hey, I have a pan that needs to go to the mikveh. Can my next door neighbor send their pan with my wife who's immersing pots? Can she take it for them? No. Absolutely. Yes. Like anything else, someone can no. do a mitzvah for you. No, okay, so I'm going to respectfully disagree and say that then. Everybody, everybody, you can fulfill a mitzvah for somebody else. You appoint someone else to do a mitzvah for you. That's fine. Now, here's a better scenario. You're living in the old city of Jerusalem. I remember I lived in the old city of Jerusalem. We're in the old city, and there were all these little, you know, Jerusalem kids that run around in little alleys. and little, A lot of legends about these Jerusalem kids. This is once a boy in Yerushalayim. I always tell my son this story. My father told me this story. He was walking around with a pot on the of Shabbat. He was taking a pot from his mother's house to his aunt's house, and it was covered. And he's carrying the pot, and some stranger says, "Hey, boy, what do you have in your pot?" And the you know, a boy from America would run away. Stranger, danger! Don't talk to strangers. But here, the Jerusalem kid doesn't care. The Jerusalem kid looks at the guy and he says, "Dear sir, if my mom wanted you to know what was in the pot, she would not have put a cover on it." And continued walking to his aunt's house. So you see these kids—they're running around, they run the world. And now you see this kid. They listen. I don't have time to leave the baby glass. I want. Here's my glass cup. I just bought it. Can you please take it to the mikveh and immerse it for me? Can we do that? Says Malan. 
and Maminin Katana Tevilat Kelim. A minor is not able to be entrusted with Tevilat Kelim. The Taz, the Brichadash, the Gona Vilna all say because it's a biblical mitzvah, we can't send a minor to fulfill this mitzvah, which is biblical for us. But the Rama adds, But if there was an adult there who was watching the immersion of the utensil, then this glass cup is considered tavun and you're able to use it. So let's say, let's say that there's an old lady or gentleman that can't carry utensils anymore to the mikveh. They just can't do it. They're, it's too heavy. So they ask their young granddaughter, or grandson, please come to the mikveh. You'll carry everything. You'll immerse it, but I'm watching you. According to the Lama, that's totally fine. And that would be considered something tavu according to halakha. The next section, let's say you have a help assistant. Let's say that same elderly person has a non-Jewish a nurse or attendant that works with them. Can they send that non-Jewish person to immerse utensils for them? If a non-Jewish person immerses the utensil for you, the tevila works. How could the tevila work? At the end of the day, it seems that tevila is a technical process that requires no kavana at all. There's nothing that has to be thought about. Remember, if you don't say bracha, who cares? As long as the went to the water, says Malan, that's fine. Rama adds a very interesting thing. Aval Yes, he can immerse the utensil for you. Yes, it's considered immersed. But you can't believe a non-Jew when they tell you anything. And therefore, you can't trust the non-Jew that they immerse the utensil for you. Uh, that, let me just say that I'm going to leave this here. I don't want to unpack this too much and make anybody feel bad. But for right now, what I will say is that, that same scenario that I told you before, where the elderly gentleman goes with their assistant to the mikveh, and their non-Jewish assistant is immersing utensils, certainly according to Malan, and maybe even the Ramat, this utensil would be considered immersed in mikveh, and there are practical ramifications to what I just told you right now. Yeah, it, it matters. Ted Zayn. Ted Zayn, the last halakha in the Shulchan If a person forgot, it's now Friday night. It's Pesach night. You're sitting around the Seder and you realize the cups that are at the table I forgot to take them to the mikveh. What do you do? What's the problem with immersing a utensil on Shabbat or Yom Tov? Right, so let's look here at Nunbet. No, who said Mitaken? Whoever said it, good job. Look at, look at Nunbet. Maran writes to Shuhana in the bottom right of the column on page 12. It's permissible to immerse the utensil on Shabbat. But there are those who prohibit. Now, when Maran says, there's a halakha, and he says, and some people say no. What is Maran's opinion in the halakha? Unless Maran writes yes, yes, then it goes like the second yes. But here he writes, you're allowed to immerse utensils on Shabbat, but some say you can't. And then he writes Maran, a qualifying sentence. It's a complicated term. I don't like it. I don't like it at all, actually. I gave a show about this to my colleague here a few months ago about the laws of Patabab Kislin, where Maran uses a similar language. This is halakha, but someone who's God-fearing, it's complicated for me, but I'm just going to read it for, that's what it says. Yes, I am a God-fearing person. 
יצא את כולם וייתן הכלי לגוי במתנה ויחזור וישלם ממנו. He can fulfill all opinions by going to his local non-Jewish neighbor, giving him the cups and say, hey, I'm giving this to you as a gift. Thank you. Now can I borrow them for you? Wonderful. You borrow them from your non-Jewish neighbor, then צריך תבילה, and you don't require תבילה at all. Rama has a different solution. Rama says, if it's a utensil that you can hold water in it, like an urn, a pot, it's something you normally would fill up with water. You just go to the mikveh, you fill up your pot with water, and the act of filling up your pot with water already made it uh, immersed inside of the mikveh. Either way, Maran is referencing to an earlier part of Shulchan Aruch, where he said it is permissible to immerse your utensil on Shabbat, though there are some that say you cannot immerse your utensil on Shabbat, and because of that, what's the solution? You should give it to a non-Jew and borrow it from a non-Jewish person. Maran writes here, back in the bold words, you give it to a non-Jew, the matana is a gift, and then you borrow it from him, and you are now allowed to use this because it's a borrowed utensil from a non-Jewish person. Rama says, you can even do this on a weekday, it doesn't have to be Shabbat. If you have no mikveh, then this works. By the way, one of the solutions I told people during COVID is such a thing. Let's assume that you want to be afraid Technically, if you use the utensil without the mikveh, and you plan to put in the mikveh later, and it's anything. That's what we have up there. Just wait till after COVID. But for right now, you wanted to lend it to your next door neighbor, and you take it back until you get the mikveh. That would work. Vim aval vishemesh bekli below tevila says the Raman. And if you use a pot that wasn't immersed in the mikveh, lo nesal mashlishemeshbo. What was cooked inside of it or used inside of it is not prohibited. With belenol, you just have to go to the mikveh and immerse it. So when is the latest date when you can immerse a utensil? You should do it as soon as possible. When is the latest moment in time you can immerse a utensil? Halatelis always says, either when the pot dies or when you die. One of the two things. Whatever comes first, meaning once the opportunity, the glass cut broke, so you can't take it anymore. So then you lost an opportunity of tibilat killing. Allah, a person passed away, they can no longer do tibilat killing. But until then, there's a little bit of a breastlet teaching here. It's never too late. The fire is never extinguished. You can always have a chance to take something to the mikveh, no matter how late it's been. And that's why even if six months into keeping kasher, you oh, nothing in my kitchen went to the mikveh, don't worry, take it out of the mikveh, immerse it in the mikveh. And all the food that you ate from it before, maybe you violated some prohibition, maybe not. But for right now, the food was kasher. You don't have to worry about whether that food is kasher. I'm not going to answer this question for you today. But as I have my own bedin for conversion, uh, oftentimes we get asked very interesting questions. One of those questions, I'm a person converted to Judaism and I have a pot. I made food in that pot and now I'm sitting in my refrigerator and I go to the mikveh. When I come home, do I have to immerse my pot? Is it now a pot that I got from a non-Jewish person? And that was me yesterday. The food that I cooked inside of my pot, it was cooked by someone not Jewish. Can I eat that food? Now, this is the kind of things that I told you last week. The Chobat al he said, listen, you finished learning all the things you need to learn that I always on this. And once in a moment of a, a brief, it was a recess here in the Kila, I gave a shiur about this. If you go to my YouTube channel, it's called uh, Post-Conversion Pupil, something like that. You're welcome to listen to the answers to those questions there. For right now, I want to summarize laws of Tevila before I take the last few minutes that I have and, and just mention to you some more modern that are connected to laws of Tevila. When I buy a utensil from a non-Jew, that could be a store, 
There could be a, a, a rummage sale. There could be a, wherever you get it. I buy a utensil from a non-Jew. Even if it is brand new, if it is metal or glass, I must immerse it in the mikveh with a blessing. Metal has priority over glass, but all metals are included in the category of metal. Wood, plastic, earthenware, bone, china, ivory, so on and so forth, do not require use of the mikveh. Uh, when I take things to the mikveh, they must be fully immersed in water at one time. All parts of the pots and pans, including lids and handles, have to be immersed inside of the mikveh. Uh, if I, for some reason, have not had a chance to take it to the mikveh, I can either wait to use it, or I can lend it to a non-Jewish person, only temporarily. You should know that that doesn't last forever. You can't lend something to your next-door neighbor forever. Uh, if I can read you one source from 12, the Taz writes in that right paragraph. It says, Taz. The Taz says, The high tikuna eno only works temporarily. That or for the period in which you don't have a mikveh. But just to give your utensils to all your neighbors and constantly borrow it from them, there's a type of crookedness in this behavior. It's it's, it's not something you should do as a long-term solution. It's something you do as a temporary solution. I think as such, those are the laws of Tevilat Kinim. I want with your permission, and for those of you who need to go, I understand if you need to go. With your permission, I just wanted to share with you a few more Piskei Halakha that are relevant to tie the knot on top of this box, which is Tevilat Kinim. And if that's okay with you, please turn with me to page 13. If there are any questions, I'm happy to take them uh, now, or uh, it's better if I can take them in a few minutes, but if it's relevant to moving forward, then I'm happy to take it now. So, Gil, if you have a question that's relevant now, I'm happy to take it. Uh, it, it can wait. Uh, fine, that's, okay, thank you. If you look on page 13, I brought to you from Chacham over the Yosef, Shalom. Fascinating to Shuvani Chavedat, in two different places, actually, where he mentions that when going to a restaurant or a hotel, even one that's owned by Jews, if it's owned by non-Jews, then for sure the glass cup in your hotel room you could use. It's, an, it's owned by a non-Jew, you're just borrowing it. Now, what if you go to a Jewish hotel like Israel, and you're not sure that they immerse that glass cup in the mikveh? Can you use the glass cup in the Israeli hotel? This is a Jewish utensil that has a requirement of tevila. You're in a hotel. So there's a few factors at play. One, is this a biblical prohibition or rabbinic prohibition? There's another factor for play, then maybe that person doesn't have to immerse utensils in the mikveh in the first place because they only bought them for business purposes, not for eating or drinking of themselves. And for a number of those reasons, including that, which could you take the cup out of the hotel if you wanted to? Could you take that cup home? No, you're not allowed to take that cup with you. And if those of you are packing your suitcases, all kinds of free things from the hotel, please don't do that. It's uh, stealing on all levels from the Torah. So don't, don't be that guy, okay? Uh, Anything, by the way. Uh, this, there's, I'm going to say the embarrassing stories. So this uh, glass cup, because you can't take it, it's not yours. It belongs to a Jewish person. It's maybe only a rabbinic prohibition. For all of those reasons, uh, you are allowed to use those glass utensils or metal utensils in a hotel or a restaurant, even though they may not, not have been immersed in a mikveh. That would be different than a private person's home. In a private person's home, there is no excuse here of, of, uh, I bought it and I'm using it only for business purposes and not for food, that would already be a different story. There's a very disturbing teshuvah here. Uh, number three, borrowing a utensil from what they call in the Orthodox world a non-observant Jew. Uh, this mentality is very difficult. I have a three-part class on YouTube called Pagans Among Us. 
there is a very strong mentality in the Jewish world that there are Jews and there are Jewish pagans. I mean, there are Jews that don't count as Jews. And you can argue that there's, obviously that's a, maybe a more traditional way to read halakha. Rav Kook suggests that if you borrow utensils from a Jewish person who's not observant of Shabbat, that you don't have to immerse those utensils on a mitzvah. Tell me why? Because that person counts as a non-Jew. They've lost Kiddushat Israel. And as such, you don't have to immerse your utensils in the mikveh. But what I want to say something for a moment. I quote Rav Kook with much reverence. I speak about him in many of my shirim. I've given a Gadita course where I go through very different ideas of Rav Kook, even those that I'm not always comfortable with. There is an illusion that has been created in, in recent years that certain Chachamim were very broad-minded, very welcoming of Am Yisrael and so on and so forth. And I'm not speaking here in the denigration of Rav Kook. But when you compare the Piskei Harakha of Harav Kuk with his counterpart, Harav Uziah. There's a fascinating article by Rabbi Angel in which he compares three or four instances like that. You'll find that there are more reasonable and less reasonable Piskei Harakha. Suffice it to say that the one that says that a Jewish person counts as a non-Jew and therefore you could borrow utensils from them doesn't sit well with me, but I brought it here just so you have it in front of you in his book, Das Kohen. Plastic utensils. I already spoke to you about this earlier. Tzit Eliezer, Waldenberg was Rav Uziel's student. And when Rav Uziel founded the World Sephardic Yeshiva in Jerusalem, he appointed Rabbi Eliezer Waldenberg to be the Rosh Yeshiva of the World Sephardic Yeshiva. And when they asked him, there was a rabbi here, Chezi Kohen, Rabbi Chezi Kohen, who spoke at the Chavura. And he wrote a beautiful book, a tiny little book about Chachamim uh, from different places, and Chachamot. He writes there the story. When they asked Rav Uziel, why did you appoint an Ashkenazi rabbi as the first World Sephardic Rosh Yeshiva? And he said, because he's the only one who's fitting to be a Sephardic Rosh Yeshiva. Arav Waldenberg is a very special Ashkenazi Chachan. When you read his writings, you can't help but appreciate how well-versed he is in the Piskei HaRachach from early rabbis to very, very late, even contemporary Sephardic Chachamim. It's something very special. And he, it's much to his credit that we even have the writings of Arav Uziel. And Arav Waldenberg made it his life's mission to preserve those writings until a man like Rabbi Dr. Ezra Barnea was able to reprint them but for a different class at a different time. Both him, Rabbi Vali Yosef, and there was a Jubal that I guess I didn't bring here from Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, all suggest that plastic does not need to be allowed because you can't make a new decree, which we didn't make before. Electric utensils. Electric utensils I brought here from a few different sources, one from Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, another from the Shalom Jubal Chikad Yaakov with an Ashkenazi rabbi in Zurich. Both of them mention different opinions. There are, if I had to say about electronic utensils, let's imagine there's an electronic utensil you have to immerse in the mikveh. Let's assume a toaster. I'm just going to say, uh, let's assume a toaster, you know, where you put bread and it toasts it, that that requires to deny the mikveh. There's a few things you can do. One, first option, is you can take apart the toaster in a way that it doesn't work anymore and put it back together. And then a Jewish person would be considered having made that toaster. And in that case, it would not require to deny. Some would say, sell it to your non-Jewish neighbor, give it to him as a gift, and borrow it. But that doesn't last forever. We've mentioned that already. That there is a very unique opinion of one of the Chachamim who says that anything that needs to be plugged into the wall is a big utensil which doesn't require uh, immersion because it's attached to the ground. I don't buy that either. And therefore, even though the chief rabbi of Israel, for example, relies on that in some utensils, not with the toaster. Uh, you can also do a number of different things. Uh, Rav Moshe Feinstein was of the opinion, unlike the Chakat Yaakov, that if you could take out the parts that require to be a so you could take out the grate and put it in the mikveh, 
you don't have to immerse the rest of the utensil. Um, other rabbis disagree, but I believe the truth is with Rabbi Moshe Feinstein here. And what I would recommend, low-tech products. What does low-tech mean? No digital displays, fancy screens, no, low-tech. It's uh, electronic, but it's not a big deal. From my experience, you don't have to accept what I'm saying. From my, I gave you other alternatives before. From my experience, if you take them to the mikveh and you dunk them in the mikveh and you take them out and you leave them in the hot sun for three days, four days, nothing will happen to you. Everything is fine. It will dry up and you're able to use those utensils. Now, all of you who are scared, that's why I gave you three different options before I told you this right now. Uh, high-tech appliances, that's already a different story. You could figure out what you would like to do with those high-tech appliances. Uh, on page 16, what about, uh, what about what about what about electric? didn't exist. Last night at 1:45 in the morning, I was on the phone with Sina Kahim. What about electric? Yes. What about electrical items, blenders, for example, where the final completion is done by a Jew? So you it, it comes to you in a kit, you assemble it together, you've then completed it. Or you install the batteries, which then allows it to work and function. Is that considered enough to actually consider the tool as built by a Jew? Or is it considered you have to actually physically be involved in manufacturing it? In my, in my opinion, that's not enough. Unless, meaning if that glass blender, that glass piece, whether or not you're going to put it on the blender, needs tevila and the mikveh. So the fact that you built the electronic part, the electronic part doesn't need tevila. It's the glass the container that needs to be that. And that was there before. You didn't build that glass container. If, you, if they give you a, here, take the blow your own glass blender kit at home, then you wouldn't need to be that. But so long as you're just taking it and putting it on top of the blender stand, in my opinion, that would require it to be that. Yes? That's a good question. And disposable utensils. This is a very special kakam. And I was telling you now about Sina Kahan. I was blaming him for something. Why am I blaming Sina? Last night, I spoke to him at 1.45 in the morning, my time. And uh, I, we were talking, we were talking, and he mentioned something about the Benish Chai. And wait a second, there's a Benish Chai. I didn't quote him in my source sheet. And I sat down to quote the Benish Chai. And listen, there was a lot of achalonim uh, here that I usually don't quote. So I figured I want to quote somebody that I normally would quote. And then I sat down. I said, you know, if I'm already quoting him, I might as well quote Rabbi Chaim David Halevi. I'm quoting David Halevi. I have to quote Rabbi Tzagabari. I'm quoting Rabbi Tzagabari. And then page 17 was born. And so this entire sheet would have not happened had Sina not called me last night. So if you're upset that the class is going too long, Please blame Sina. It's not my fault. Uh, disposable utensils. Chacham Yitzhak Abali, who's a very, very special Chacham. I wish him a flash the man. It seems that he's not in the best of health. Nowadays, last I tried to visit him, I wasn't able to get there. Rabbi Yitzhak Abali, in his book, Or Yitzhak, has two volumes. Precious, precious writings. I'd like to tell you, as much as I'm not a student of Rabbi Yitzhak Abali, and I, I have not merited to learn from him, nor do I agree with all of the Piske Halakha that I've read in his Teshuvot. The writings of Rabbi Yitzhak Abali I would argue to say that you have no other chacham of that stature living in the United States right now. And I mean no disrespect to other chachamim, but I mean all of the respect for Rabbi Yitzhak The style of teshuvah which he writes is something that you don't find elsewhere. This is a tiny teshuvah, not a real teshuvah that he wrote. It's like uh, short questions and answers that he gave. And regarding disposable utensils, Rabbi Yitzhak like I love but I wanted to bring you a source. I don't have a source in the writings of Rabbi for this. Disposable utensils are not required to go to the mikveh. There are people who take their disposable pads to mikveh. I've heard about it. But something, and this is based on Arambam and the laws of Kelim. The Arambam and the laws of Kelim suggest that something that's not lasting. It's not going to be, it's not really considered a Kelim. And because of that, your disposable pad, even if you're going to reuse your disposable pad, how many times can you reuse a disposable aluminum pad 
before it falls apart. It's not going to last forever. It's not a real. It's not a real kli. And because of that, you're not required to take it to the mikveh, even if you were to reuse it. What makes something disposable or not? Rabbi Abadi suggests there's a certain level of subjectiveness. You know, you are you're taking a glass bottle. Your, your uh, orange juice came in a glass bottle, and now you want to wash it out and reuse it. So if you're like my grandmother, that glass bottle was going to last until you have great grandchildren. But if you're me, that glass bottle is going to sit on the counter for another day or two. I'll use it maybe one more time, and I'll throw it in the trash. What is considered disposable or not may very well be subjective. And that's something that you have to sit with an emit and, and figure out what is true for you and what is not. And I suggest highly, if you could read this to Shabbat, that would be Tzakabadi. Regarding large utensils, let's say you have something that's too big to fit in Margaret's mikveh kelim. What do you do with it? How do you fit it? It doesn't fit. The Ben Ishchai writes in Parashat Matot in the second year. So Ben Ishchai's book is written over two years' time. In the second year, he says, and it brings a number of sources, that a pot that is too big to fit inside of a mikveh simply is not required. That tibla is not required on it. It's interesting how you reach that conclusion, but that's a pasach halacha I'm sharing with you here. And the second is very important, and that is, remember the scissors I told you about in the kitchen? You have those scissors that you usually use to cut paper. But every once in a while, you cut something food with it. And the same thing, the same thing, you might have a pot that he mentions. There's a big pot that the woman in his house used to do laundry with. But when it comes to a wedding or bar mitzvah, that's where they put, they, they clean it out, and they put food, and they bring out food in there. Does that pot require tevila? Says the Ben Ishchai, that it only requires tevila if that's the majority use of that pot. But if it's an irregular use of a utensil, it does not require tevila before it is used. This is very important. It's very important because this also applies to the laws of kashrut. Those of you who've been to my Pesach classes, and when we talk about nechshelkin, we're going to talk about this, that you only kasher a utensil, I borrow that word, in the way in which it's a majority use. If you use a cup, this cup is always used for cold. But I once used it for coffee. It does not require hachshara with hot water, rather only with cold water, because we go the majority of its use. The same thing would apply to the laws of utensils. The last source I want to read to you today before I answer everybody's questions. The last source, and we will be doing this teshuvah at length, maybe in the last class. Rabbi Chaim David Halavi, one of my favorite fachamim of the last generation. Rabbi Chaim David Halavi was asked by a student, he goes to visit his non-observant Jewish relatives. And they serve him food. And he's, how can I eat food in their house? Remember, I spoke about this last week. We're going to read the Natari Teshuvah. And he, he gives Chacham, uh, Chaim David Halavi a dozen things that could be wrong. Not really a dozen. A, number, a list of things. They don't do Tibirat Kilim. They don't uh, keep Kashem. They don't this. They don't that. Tuhumot in Ma'asrot. It's a land of Israel. All kinds of things that a guy gives up. Why you can't eat in your non-observant relative's house. Rabbi Chaim David Halavi dismisses him entirely. And I will be reading that Tishuvah with you. But the first part of the Tishuvah is very important. He says, The second paragraph in number nine. Everything that you mentioned in your letter, This is a real Samaritan Chacham. I see no issue. There are issues in your letter that you brought up. But I see no serious issue which you as a Tamil Chacham cannot overcome. You mentioned Tamil Tivilat Kelim. Listen to how Chacham thinks. You can assume, and I'm not sure this is correct, today things come from all over the world, except from Israel, but he says, you could assume that the pots and pans, the glass, that are made in Israel. It's from Israel. Why do you have to assume they're not made in Israel? Unless you know for sure that this comes from outside of Israel. But what if you don't know? What if this glass cup maybe came from Israel? 
Maybe it didn't come from Israel. But you live in the land of Israel. So yeah, it doesn't have a sticker at the bottom that says made in China. So maybe it comes from Tel Aviv. Maybe. It's a doubt. He said, you have to think of a few things. Maybe my utensil comes from Israel, maybe it doesn't. It's a doubt as to a rabbinic law. Why? Because your glass cup is only obligated in the rabbinically because it's glass. It's not metal. He said, for that reason, why are you making such a fuss over something that is a doubt as to rabbinic law? Why are you looking to make problems? He writes this at the end of the letter. You're looking to insult your host for no reason. Why are you trying to insult your host? There's a way to do this. And I brought to you from Halav Eliezer Melamed, who quotes Chamor Chariel. I only brought this. I wanted to give you a source. Somebody will say, oh, I said you can have tea in a non-observant relative's home. He says, he heard from Chamor Chariel, you can drink tea in all of your relative's homes. I don't need a source for that. It's almost like I need to bring you a source that uh, right now it's two o'clock in the afternoon. So I don't need a source to tell you it's two o'clock. It's two o'clock. Nothing you can do about it. Even if you don't like them, it's two o'clock. Maybe by you it's not. So whatever time it is by you. But we live in a world where you have to bring a proof from everything. And I decided to bring you some of these sources so you could think about the laws of the community. And if I could summarize, before we even enter our kosher kitchen, before we talk about hachsharat kinu, before we talk about making pots from dairy to meat or from chametz to pesach, before we deal with anything to do with kashrut, before we get to kashrut, we have to make sure that all of the pots and pans in our kitchen, all of the utensils, the cups, the plates, the knives, the spoons, everything, uh, all of those things require tzivina if they're made of metal and glass. And Hashem, we should know how to use these halachot when we go other places and how to deal with the disposable items and with the uh, temporary use items with the electronic items. Hashem, as we incorporate these ideas into our life, we'll be more conscious of the halachot that Hashem gave us in the Torah and the Rambam and Shukhanu. Everywhere that we go, we'll see these items. We'll see a plastic cup, ah, it doesn't need tzivina. We'll see a ceramic cup, it doesn't need tzivina. We go to the store, ah, a glass cup, I have to take it to the mikveh. This is something that when we program ourselves to think and remember that it does not affect the kashrut status of our food, then we can see we might merit that even in the mundane things like buying glass cups or buying forks and knives, we're able to be conscious of the mitzvah that the boy, the creator, gave us in his Torah. Thank you so much for learning with me today. I wish everybody a beautiful day or evening, depending where you are in the world. I will stick around to answer questions, of course, but I'm going to turn off the recording so that uh, we can say whatever we want in the recording. The school Thank Hi. you so much, Chacham. That was very insightful. And we'll take some questions. I think we'll uh, start with Gil. Thank you, Rabbi, for this year. Um, I had a question in terms of uh, ceramic cups um, with, with, I guess, a glass glaze. Um, you mentioned Rabbi Yitzchak about it. I think he's um, lenient on it. Um, when it comes to Tvila, what, what's your opinion? Like, how do you 